This episode brought to you by BRE Promotions. Whether you're just starting out or evolving your brand, BRE Promotions offers you expertly crafted disruptions that'll take you to the next level. BRE Promotions, we make your business shine. Visit us at brepromotions.com to schedule your free consultation. Hi, I'm Andy McGrath, author of Peace of Britain, the speaker and field investigator. I'm also currently working on a, a TV series under the same name, Peace of Britain, and a new podcast, Peace of Series, featuring low-key interviews with researchers around the world. I'm also continuing my passion for writing about cryptids and other place animals in other parts of the world. Uh, my new Beast of Britain map is currently out, and I'm also working on uh, my next book, Beast of North America, and Welcome to the Goblin Universe. Hi, everybody. I don't know. Uh, you know, we're supposed to start this new broadcast, this new program, but I, I don't know. I, may, maybe you should start it. I, I, You know what? Here, you start it. We're back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> My paranormal brother, Mr. Brian Bowden and Ron Murphy, I gather together inside the Goblin Universe the way it has been always designed to be, my friend. That's correct. We got a great show. Get a real- we have a fantastic show. Actually, stepping back inside this rabbit hole, I would rather be on here with no other person than our next guest. If he was not into cryptozoology, he would still be one of my favorite people on this planet. 100%. Yep. Just great, great a, people. A, a, a true, genuine human being. I got a chance to meet him at uh, CryptidCon down in uh, Kentucky last year. We had breakfast together, which was awesome. Uh, there's no story behind that. We just had breakfast together, and then we did a great after party, so I got to hang out with him for a while. Um, and I've been looking forward to having him on our program. I'm sure that you have too, Brian. 100%. So without further let's bring in Mr. Andy McGrath. Andy, welcome. Hello. Hello, fellas. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm excellent, my friend. How are you? I'm very good. I've got a, a little bit of man flu going on, so I could die, obviously. But um, <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it's official, officially man flu, I could go. So, yeah, a little bit bunged up today, but I will try to make it as, as clear as possible in my most dulcet and um, uh, monotonous English tones. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I, I think it's, a, it's an absolute honor to have you on. Um, this is the first time we've actually spoken, spoken. And I definitely look forward to eventually, hopefully, meeting up with you and uh, some of the other crew over there in the UK where I, I actually put you in the class of the uh, League of Extraordinary UK Men and Women, Gentlemen and Ladies in the Paranormal. I mean, you're, you're one of the top, in my opinion. You do a great job with what you do. And I couldn't thank you more. I mean, the just Beast of Britain alone is a fantastic resource for everybody. It's actually oh. yeah, that, that, it, it's a must on any anybody's uh, uh, desk. If, if you are into the paranormal, into the cryptozoological, the unexplained, this is a must-have book, folks. And the other thing about Andy as well, that he just does not limit himself to the beasties of Great Britain. You've also done a lot of research in the United States, haven't you, my friend? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, I'm I'm actually currently writing *Beasts of North America*. That's the the second book in the series. And yeah, initially, when I wrote them, it was supposed to be *Beasts of Britain* followed by a TV series, and then *Beasts of North America*, and then so on and so forth around the world. Uh, but I'm still pitching the TV series, so 
any production people out there, do get in touch. <laughs> I'm waiting for well, to say yes. We will risk the reputation of our network on this venture. <laughs> you know, I, I, you, you know Chris Turner. So have a do like two or three episodes with Chris and then sell it that way. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's a possibility, but I really feel that it needs a big treatment. I think it, and, and Chris is amazing. I mean, he actually did my teaser trailer. Uh, for Beast of Britain, and he knocked that together in two days. We used a few bits of stock footage and other things to sort of convey the point up there at Lake Windermere looking for the Bonessi, uh, the late monster of that particular um, Cumbrian lake. And uh, two days he put it together. I was inexperienced in front of the camera, average of 10 takes on every single <laughs> shot, you know, two or three lines, and he was just patient. He said, Candy, you know what, you need to be louder. I said, but I am being loud. He said, no, 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 you have a very quiet voice. I need you to shout. And I shouted. He said, still quiet. I said, but I'm shouting. He said, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> you need to shout in your normal voice for it to be a normal person's voice at that level. And it's strange because I've been a singer for 30 years. I can really sing very, very loud, huge projection when it comes to talking. I could barely open my mouth to get the words out. I've actually was a witness to Andy singing Radiohead's Creep, and he did a fantastic version, actually better than the album version, in my opinion. Oh, you're on. I'm completely honest. It's I totally ducked out at the end bit, the high bit at the end. I felt Kevin suddenly had never sung that song before. I realized, oh, he gets really high in falsetto at the end here. I'm going to have to duck out. What am I doing? <laughs> I just kind of sent it in a different direction like I was ad-libbing, but it was a cop-out, a complete cop-out. Well, you just point the mic at the audience and have them sing it. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's the old standby. Whenever I was on stage and I knew this, these high pitches were coming, I'm like, I just point the, point to the mic to someone else and like, yeah, you guys sing it now. Because I'm not reaching that tone. I haven't reached those tones in ages. Um, so when I when I hear Beasts of Britain, I think of the Clash's Guns of Brixton. So I, wow. I mean, I, I always have thought of it that way. And you know, you're a musician. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I know that song. I, I love it too. You know, strangely, when I'm out there, especially if I'm on the water, I was at Loch Ness very recently, and I teased a trailer I did with Christian at, at Lake Windermere. When I'm out there on the boat on the water, um, I, the tune that comes into my head it's on my Amazon playlist too is John Williams Out to Sea from the first Jaws movie <laughs> oh right <laughs> right time. wow yeah. um, do, 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 do. it's like great I'm like yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we go, and it's kind of yeah. a bit sort of moody and um, it's weird that that movie had yeah. such a strong effect I, mean, I was talking to Scott Modest the other day because I've been in, interviewing a bunch of people for my um, my podcast uh, well it's more of like a, a crypto chat with friends it's complete and total nepotism it's just people i like <laughs> who are big in the industry and whose brains i actually want to pick to find out what they know right. it's a real cheeky endeavor and um it's just you know on youtube it'll be on youtube probably and it's nothing special other than it's just me and somebody else just chatting and it takes place um in a, a, we have a tiny london house and um you know in, more expensive than most of the houses you, you get in the US that are huge, like you know, acres of land. But it's like a two-bedroom tiny house with a, <laughs> a little white picket fence garden. That's it. And a yard at the back. Anyway, because of this tiny house, my children, they love animal figurines. They've got hundreds of different <laughs> animal figurines from Bigfoot to Nessie to like baby lambs and 
pachyderms, uh, sorry, pangolins and all these different things. So I'm in the playpen with the animals behind me. And what people can't see when I'm interviewing is there's all these teddies around me. <laughs> and, <enjoying. laughs> and the people are asking, you've got a lot of figurines, you've got a lot of animals. I said, not mine, they're my daughters. You know, so five years old. You can name every single one of them with its scientific name. She knows it. Wow. Every single one. And she's chosen every single animal. Apart from one or two, I got um, Terence Muncie, I gifted me the Bigfoot from Jean Saint, uh, Jean's uh, cryptid re- replica, uh, uh, creature replica, and uh, the coelacanth I got from the International Cryptozoology Museum last year. That's I know that, everything that's a, else you've chosen. That's Portland, Maine, right? It was great. It was really nice. Uh, Maine as well. Very, very nice state. It you know they, tons of crypto uh, cryptozoology type of uh, creatures in there from uh, dark the black dogs to yep. definitely Bigfoot Sasquatch um, uh-huh. giants yeah sea serpents and things yeah. the thing about about the urban sprawl of uh, of the British Isles um, is the least populated state east of the Mississippi River so we're talking about a lot of desolate areas in Maine. Well, I mean, yeah, we we um, at least populated. We drove through it as well. I drove through it on the way to Vermont. I spent uh, five days at Lake Champlain, there and um, also met a guy. What was his name? James Jim. Or I wish I could remember. He was the head of the American Fortune Society at one point. Um, Jim Har? No. Jim Harold's a talk show host. Um, oh, I can't, <laughs> I'll, I'll find his name for you anyway. Anyway, he had seen a tassel worm in New Hampshire. Yeah when he was uh, 15, 16 years old, described a big, long black creature about uh, two meters long with uh, really deep yellow stripes running along it. Couldn't see the legs, but like zipped past him into a, a railway embankment and started digging away to get in. Like, all of this stuff coming out. He invited us to his house. It was, it was almost like the International Cryptid, Cryptozoology Museum for 40 in research. His house was full of all of this stuff he had like Viking helmets and Saxon uh, swords and great cryptid photographs and uh, saber-toothed cat skull, like amazing stuff. He was just a lovely guy. Just say, come and spend the day when we have breakfast. So I got to drive through this whole thing into New Hampshire as well, all the way to Vermont. And it's just, you live in a beautiful country, you know? You really got some space. Yeah. I mean, even in New York, you guys have got some real, you know, space there. Uh, you know, I... I, I say this all the time when I grew up in the 70s and I and I, I've listened to some interviews with you as well um, I definitely have been following your career um, in this as a researcher and also as just you know this general interest um, I think we all grew up with in search of yeah. and basically the theme is that I got from it is Bigfoot lives in the Pacific Northwest uh-huh. and he's nowhere near the East Coast and that's when as you grow up a little bit later you go Wrong. <laughs> Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Dogman. Um, primary sightings for this cryptid right now are on the East Coast. And you get it from New York State, well, Canada, all the way down into like, you know, basically the Appalachian Trail is yeah. the Bigfoot Highway. Um, and it shocks the heck out of you. So, yes. you know, when, when you see all these different, these different areas, and I remember driving uh, back from Pennsylvania, and I don't know how you do it sometimes, Ron, but you're on this highway and they clear cut, you know, acres and you look in during the day, you're looking through this forest and it is black. 
Mm. And imagine just being stuck there. Think about this. I mean, we're all mm. researchers. You go out in the field, we're boots on the uh -huh. ground. Just imagine, <laughs> imagine you're walking in this and you're going, what person in their right mind says, you know, it's really dark in there. I think we should just take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I think it's the thing, like you said, it, it, it's an idea that there's something out there beyond us that we have to, if not, at least let's recognize that there's the possibility of something out there. And that's what keeps us going. I, I think you know that that's right. It's it's all about. It should be about the joy of research. Clearly, people want to find something. It's not otherwise. You just take a walk in the woods for fun, wouldn't you? Without sure. looking around, yeah. or you know, you take a boat out on the lake, or, or do whatever you do. Um, I think I've talked to so many people recently that go into such great lengths to for their joy of research. I, I talked to a guy, um, Jonathan David Wickham. You might know him. He was, he's been out in Papua New Guinea searching for the rope and in Dava, you know, the first time he went there, he didn't even know what the, the local lingo was. There's a hundred different tribes there that speak different languages. It's really stone age in a way, lots of it, lots of the rural aspects of it. And yet he's the guy who said, okay, I'm going to go out and look for the rope. And, run, run. and this is apparently a very uh, predatory creature anyway. You know, it's not friendly. Um, it's the same with them. Uh, I'm hoping to interview a guy called Michelle Ballow, who's been searching for Michele and Bembe for the last 20 years or so. And I'm speaking at a conference with him in Berlin in October. Um, oh, very nice. And he's going to be coming over. I think he's got a Cameroonian wife. So he searches from the Cameroonian, Cameroonian side of the Congo. It's safer, I think. Right. And here we are. He's out there in this wild, wild jungle. I mean, this is the jungle you could easily get lost in and never, ever be found again. Huge animals, it's hippos, it's crocodiles. And the creature itself, Bembe, is supposed to be very adverse to human interaction and often smashes people's boats to bits. It's like a diplodocus or something like that. Patasaurus, perhaps. Um, but it's mostly aquatic. It stays in the water. They've got other things like the ngubu, which is, um, I think that's kind of like a, a monoceratops, uh, like a, a one-horned triceratops I'd call it but you know a ceratopsid right. um, and the yellow and yellow and yellow which I think is like a stegosaur type animal all these creatures tend to spend some time in the water by the sense of it um, and are very adverse to human people the pygmies aren't very friendly there in the jungle there's a communist faction that you can get and there's a civil war on the other side and yet he's here 20 years saying yep I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep going I'm looking for it mm. and that to me is astounding Right. So, what draws you to the lake monsters? I know that you know you look for things that uh, go bump in the night in the forest as well. But as far as lake monsters go, this is really your thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely not an expert on lake monsters in the, in the way of uh, Loch Ness, in the way that somebody like Roland Watson or uh, Adrian Shine would be. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, but. The thing that first fascinated me about it was, of course, in search of, like Brian's mentioned, you know, <laughs> having Nimoy tell you what's out there. Well, when Spock tells you something's going on, you listen, right? Yeah, you do. And That's that right. Loch Ness venture that they did, and also the Ogopogo one that they did, um, really had a big bearing on me. And uh, Arling Gull's book, uh, Million Dollar Monster, I think it was, Ogopogo, the Million Dollar Monster, I have it on my bookshelf. I had it for years and years since I was a you know, young teenager. Really stuck with me. And I thought, yeah. 
it's not just Loch Ness, it's everywhere. And then when you look at Britain, actually, loads of the lochs, loads of the lakes and the coasts especially, there's lake monsters and sea monster sightings all around for hundreds of years and right up until the present day, not just Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. I think we mostly see them in Loch Ness because it's a big body of water and there's lots of tourists there year-round. Um, but in the other places, we see them around. There's Morag, Loch Morar, of course. There's been quite a few sightings there. That's a very underpopulated lake. Bonessie, as we mentioned in Lake Windermere. There's been, um, I think, 10 sightings there since 2006, um, some in the past. Teggy, the monster of Lake um, Tegid, uh in North Wales, or Lake Ballas, it's called in English. That's one of my favorites. Nice Welsh lake. Four miles long. That's wow. it. Four miles there's only? 12, 12, four miles only. Very deep. But it's a 12-mile river, the River Dee, that goes out into the estuary there, into the Mersey near Liverpool. So there's a, in many cases, there's a way in and way out here. Um, there was the River Arran monster, that's, um, uh, which is very similar to the Barmouth estuary monster, a very crocodilian type of animal. Pembroke Dock Monster, that was seen in 2003. You might have seen that. A massive marine saurian, it looked like they just swam into the dock. It was uh, about five cars long, seen by a whole pub full of people. goes on, Sultan Cove Chameleon, I, so named because it was seen coming out of the water, arched its back like a pleasure sort, like a, a type of animal. It was photographed as well. Arched its back on a, a bank of seaweed. It was chasing mackerel around the bay. They were beaching themselves. And one of the witnesses that saw this creature, saw it for about half an hour, basically said that as it arched its back, when it was on top of the seaweed bank going to, um, uh, trying to uh, stalk these mackerel again, it changed color, turned black. And then when it headed off back into the water, it turned greenish brown again. Wow. Oh, example of one of these creatures changing color. And you hear over the day, it was kind of a black, it was kind of a gray, it was kind of a green, a brown, a this, that. And it got me thinking, perhaps they can change color in some way um the plymouth crocodile 2015 20 foot long creature crocodilian looking creature with a, a sort of a, a nessie type uh, neck that was photographed several times swimming around near a boat and it goes on and on and my favorite and i will stop speaking after this i promise was the thames in the, the thames river monster river thames monster that was spotted it was actually the catalyst the main catalyst for me to start writing this book in 2016, three times it was filmed. Uh, first from the the, um, the Emirates cable car that goes over to the O2 centre across the Thames. You know, three hump creature, large hump, middle sized hump, small hump, about 50, 60 feet long, emerges in the middle of the Thames and submerges. And I was excited. I get out onto the water in 2016 on a boat. I'm there for two weeks looking for it. I have to go on holiday, visit my wife's family in the Middle East. There's a second video exciting. Oh. Um, with this, uh, what, what looks like a serpentine creature, is spotted by a bunch of friends on a, like a pleasure cruise. And the other friends, they're talking about some rainbow somewhere. You can see they haven't seen it. Whoever's filming goes filming. She's zooming in thinking, what the hell is this? Huge. <laughs> huge. And it makes an S shape when it's swimming, so it's not a whale. It's not a fish. Um, and then a third sighting on one of the speedboat tours, an American tourist snaps it near... Uh, uh, Docklands in the Canary Wharf coming out this massive hump coming out of the water and going back in yeah I, I remember seeing some video of this um, there's three I, pieces of video independent well there, I don't remember which video but I remember it almost looked like a drone footage so I guess it's the cable the Emirates uh, the cable cable yeah and um, I 
you know, unfortunately, we're so jaded today. Everybody says, oh, that's, that's CGI. No, this, yeah. was, this got me excited, and then I started yeah. looking a little bit of it, and then my fatherly duties had a kick, and so it kind of went to the back, back burner there. Yeah. What do you think um, – what do you think the role of, of dinosaurs – is in these cryptids, these creatures. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, let's talk about that. What do you think we're doing here? Uh, sorry again, Ron? Say that again, Ron. I was thinking about what, are, what, what do you think that we're dealing with here? I actually asked Dr. Carl Schroeder about what he thinks we're dealing with when we talk about the Loch Ness monster, and he um, he claims that you know we could be dealing with a reptile that just simply is adapted to that particular environment. What do you think is going on here? I, I've, I've got to be honest that my opinion isn't very popular, but I'm a, a complete one hundred percent advocate of the plesiosaur theory, and the reason for that is when you try to think of the monster imposters that it could be could be a whale's catfish. Okay, that's fine. Maybe some back sightings if there was a whale's catfish there. Um, but then what about when you have the head and neck sightings or mm. the multi-humps? It could be an otter. Well, they never get longer than four feet long and never that long even in Loch Ness. It, when they're seen there, it's very hard to find them. Could be a seal. Yeah, but you recognize seals pretty much straight away. You might be full for a second, but not for very long. And again, the neck length, is and the, the body length is is, is wrong. Yeah. Um, maybe it could be a sturgeon. Well, what about the tail fluke? You know, what about the flippers? What about the um, uh, scooted back? This these are all things that don't really match it. But when you right. have a forty foot long animal described, or especially with some of the land sightings which you'd find in Roland Watson's book, when monsters come ashore, you know, we're talking about you know a, an archer or a humpback, long tail, four flippers, long neck with a small head. There's nothing else it could be. People say a seal, perhaps, that we don't know about. But just when you have to make lots of mental twists and turns to explain away something that's easily explained by an animal that we once knew existed, mm -hmm. I think right. it's safer to say when it looks like a dinosaur, uh, you know, when it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a dinosaur. Right. <laughs> and we have that iconic photograph, the certain photo of this creature coming up out of the water, right? Well, that still is burned within our minds. Yeah. Um, and, and we talked about this before on a previous interview that we did. Um, that one uncropped photo is so hard to explain away whenever you see this creature within contact with the nest, you know, a little over a mile wide, and you see something with the far shore in the background, you give this thing a bit of a scale, and it looks like you're seeing something living on the surface. And I know that that's not a very popular opinion, seeing that photo has been, you know, all but debunked by, you know, most of the professionals in this world. But there's something about one Oh. That the uh, the search photo that simply made me think that this was an actual animal that uh, that was filmed. Um, I mean, yeah, I, most of the times I think people are, are finding or seeing or photographing real animals, whatever they may be, in Loch Ness and other places. In Loch Ness, there's a reason, a specific reason why I think that most of the sightings are genuine. Not all, because it's a hard body of water to look at 
with the distance and most people aren't prof uh, carrying professional cameras etc around with them but the one thing I, I do notice about a lot of this is this 250,000 to 350,000 visitors every year actually when you look around the lock when you're there it's not very built up at night it's completely dark almost the fact that there's only between four and eight and of course we had a lot of sightings last year but generally between four and eight sightings every year actually doesn't make sense if they're mistaken identity because with all of the people's eyes wanting to see Nessie being trained on the lock there should be many many more mistaken identity sightings every year there should be hundreds but there aren't there's two three five maybe which goes to show that the people who are actually reporting something really felt convinced they saw something mm -hmm. not a wave and the waves do move strangely there they really do move in an odd way they've got these weird currents it's very deep the wind hits the lock in a strange way too and if you stand up on a hill I actually went on a hike above I was at Fort Augustus and I uh, checking out a, the recent sighting of Ricky D. Phillips the, the head and neck the, the river Oich sighting yeah. I stayed there for three days and I hiked around the area as well um, walked all the way down the Cal Caledonian Canal to Loch Kytron and it just went everywhere anyway I went up into these into this beautiful pine forest up in the hills uh, <coughs> called Alt Nekrish. And I got there and I got this overview of the loch and several times you could see these long um, sort of wavy waves happening. And then I get my binoculars out and look further down the loch and sure enough, you know, about a mile away, there was a boat that I passed. And yet the, the, the bow waves were still coming, still coming. <coughs> and I said to myself, well, in a place like Loch Ness, clearly, you would you get used to the way the boats are, and the, the way the water works very quickly. You would really, really have to see something, especially with the pressure on on that kind of sighting, to report it. And everybody's reported like that. I saw uh, an animate, a living creature come up. I saw it. I didn't see strange wave disturbance or the back of the seal. And by the way, when seals get into the loch, it's very rare. It's very hard for them to get there, but it's almost everybody knows straight away. They're very conspicuous. <coughs> Excuse me. They've been seen en route, usually, on the on their way there, too. So it's an animal that's, that's captured very quickly. We don't really have an explanation uh, for what people are seeing if it's not, in my mind, if it's not some sort of um, prehistoric living creature. It seems to match that uh, description everywhere in the world. Yes, yeah. you know, it, it's something that's very interesting, and, and I don't, you know, people that are fans of this subject, uh, they come up with a lot of questions, but as a researcher, you have to really take everything in, and one of the things that it's, people just dismiss it, but it's so true, that when you are interviewing somebody who's seen something, Loch Ness, whatever, uh, Lake Champlain, these are people that have spent their life in the area. They know every nook and cranny. Sure. And when something's out of whack, they oh, know yeah. it. And when, when they tell you, I saw 20 foot hump and a head come out, there's no reason, they know, they're telling you the truth. There, there's really not much money into this. I mean, Loch Ness is Loch Ness. The new yeah. photos, fantastic. Maybe that'll draw a couple more tourists. But in general, no one's making money off of this thing. No um, way. So, so you, you know, it's not like you'd say, well, they're making a ton of money. No. If someone's coming out and telling you that, that um, 
I saw the hump come out. I saw a flipper. Uh, it came on shore. And, of course, you're going to say, are you sure about that? It, it's not to be condescending to the witness, but it's like you just want to make sure that they're telling you what they yeah. told you. But these people have definitely seen it. They know it. It's kind of like when you come home or something and something's off or something's missing. You know something has taken place. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking, you know, when you mentioned Ogopogo, <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble for that one. We went to Canada. We went to the lake where Ogopogo is. Oh, wow. And I was there with my wife and my bull terrier, and we were, you know, we, were, we took a week off. So I pull up to the, I finally pull up to the lake, and I'm sitting on the shore there because not being there ever before, I, you, got, you know, you got to look for a great vantage point. And I was thinking maybe we'd get lucky. And I'm sitting, and we're sitting. And after about 20 minutes, my wife looks at me and goes, what are we doing? And I said, just keep looking at the lake. Um, and she's like, uh, okay. And she looks, and another 10 minutes go by, and she goes, no, seriously, what are we doing? I said, well, let's look at the lake. And she's looking at me, and she goes, what the heck are we doing? I said, well, you know, there's Ogopogo. And, and she goes, what? Ogo who? And I said, Ogopogo, it's, it's like Loch Ness Monster. She goes, turn the car on and get me the... Mm, back to where we were. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that's another good point, though, Brian and Andy. So, because there is definitely a tourist history built around these little water, if it is indeed a reptile, it has to come up to breathe. So, how do we account that there's not more sightings being taken place? Well, there's a very good explanation for this. Okay. okay. So there's a few explanations. I think it's a combination of all of them. Okay. So um, I've been discussing with a colleague recently, the, um, uh, I forget which river it's in in Australia, but the, it's nicknamed the butt-breathing turtle. So it has a cloacal um, uh, bone in its in its but essentially, that uh, some sort of air sac there, or that's able to basically turn water into oxygen, uh-huh. and they think it can stay down for over a week. This thing, and it's a small turtle. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have said, well, you know, plesiosaur and turtle morph- morphology isn't really that different. No, they're you know, both they're it, both it, reptiles, right? Yeah, and they, they, even in in shape, etc. And perhaps these creatures have that ability as well. Now, that's not something you can determine from fossils, of course. Um, but if not, if they're not doing that, you know, a crocodile can stay down for an hour. Maybe something that's 40 feet can stay down for four or five hours. I don't know. But if they're not able to, to convert um, uh, oxygen from water, I would imagine that they're just coming up very, very occasionally and just looking ahead above the surface a little bit and taking some air. Now, um, if you're living in Loch Ness, it's black in there. It's so filled with peat you can't see anything. This animal must have some way of finding its way around, some ability. Now, in Lake Champlain, some people have talked about the possibility of um, echolocation. It's not been proven, but they did capture some cetacean-like noises. Some um, blue, they, yes. Yeah, well, they... they um, they uh, compared it, I think that was with Elizabeth Muggenthaler, they compared it to, uh, I think it was a sperm whale. Mm. Um, and so, uh, say this might not be, it might be a form of communication, but they have to find their way around somewhere. I would think that at least they have very good hearing, at the very least, or eyesight if they're in very deep, dark water. And that when boats are going over, that they're not there. And what's 
conspicuous about Loch Ness, especially if you look from the Fort Augustus side, which is right at the end of the loch. It's not near Inverness. Actually, most of the road doesn't go around the loch on one side of it. You know, it, it's, um, it goes up into the hills and all the way around until you get to Jory's, and so you don't see the loch from that side. There aren't many habitations on, on the other side. Most of the road, uh, the loch is obscured by trees. Mm-hmm. So you, when you're driving around it, you actually don't see a lot of the loch. There's not many uh, habitations. And then again, of course, once it's dark, I took a little clip there. And this was in the most populated town apart from Inverness, around Loch Ness, and Port Augustus. I took a little clip at night and it was black. There was nothing. There was nothing. The occasional light far off in the distance. This is this huge, most popular tourist destination in, in the Highlands. And yet, where are the lights? Where are the people? Where's the industry? It's a very pristine area. So I think you find that in a lot of places is that actually, and probably it's the same in Lake Okanagan, actually, yep. you know, these bodies of water, they aren't over-inhabited. They're not illuminated throughout the night. Mm-hmm. If a creature is nocturnal, if it's cautious, there's a chance of staying out of sight. Uh, that's right, that's right. But, yeah. You, you know, uh, yeah. Just, just very briefly, I'm just going to just pop onto the top of that. Sure. I know that was a long diatribe, but um, a lot of people who've witnessed a lot of this monster have also witnessed it submerging just before boats come into view. That's been a very common feature of witness sightings. And that the creature suddenly looked around and submerged, and 30 seconds later, they've noticed a boat coming up the loch. Well, you know, one of the, uh, I was talking to Ron about this a while ago, and I've always had this theory that um, all these different locks, including with, even in North America, I have a feeling that we may find it when we explore under the, the, the water that there may be a connection there and maybe this creature is the same exact creature that we're seeing in, in Scotland in the UK that you see in Lake Champlain you see Ogopogon the, almost like vents um, or, or you know uh, uh, that you know we have in, in the ocean some of them the trenches that, that are down there the Mariana Trench I mean is how many thousands of feet deep and what's to say this creature isn't just, you know, traveling back and forth or using the open oh, waters? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think there, there's, some, there's sightings in the North Sea. There's sightings in the Irish Sea, in the Atlantic as well, yep. and around the coast of the U.S. I think that these creatures, many of them, not all of them, are at some point um, ocean-bound. Now, the reason I went to, to the River Oik with that sighting was is because if you... It's parallel with the Caledonian Canal, but if you and it comes out of Loch Ness at the end of Loch Ness, if you walk down far enough, finally you get to Loch Kaita, then you get to Loch Oich, and then from there you know Loch Lochy and so on and so forth, and it's a very long journey with some shallow patches all the way down to the sea. But they have been seen um, in Loch Linia, which I think is the um, Loch Hill, which is actually in the sea at the very end there of that, that, um, that highland drift and they have been seen in all the other bodies all the way up of water so either they're distinct populations that inhabit all of these connecting waters at some point or they very infrequently come back and forth from the sea my old theory used to be that they're seen in Loch Ness when they're in the loch and when they come in from the sea and when they're not seen it's because they're not there right but yeah that explains a lot for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that also explains why, you know, there's a breeding population necessarily to be present in the water. 
the breeding population uh, there? It could take place in the ocean, sure. Sure, sure, it, it could take place in the ocean. But another thing to um, find uh, to think about for Scotland, anyway, is that you have thirty-one thousand four hundred sixty lochs and lochens in Scotland alone, and many of them connect to the sea. Many of them are sea lochs, and uh, at least many around that area of Loch Ness, Loch Lomond, Loch Mora, etc., uh, Loch Lochy, Loch Oi, um, Loch Gary, they've had monster sightings at some point. There's a fantastic salmon and trout population throughout the entire sort of Scottish river system year-round. There's just so much food. And most of these lochs and lochs, think of how pristine Loch Mora or Loch um, Ness is. You get to the small ones, there's really nobody there. There might be a homestead. Maybe somebody owns that bit of land and they've got a house or two houses. There's no one. Scotland is is the darkest place in the British House and it's so it literally so wild and so pristine I truly believe it's possible it's not proof I understand that there could be a good a reasonable population moving around the you know, that part of the island possible you know yeah, sure. another another theory that was thrown out and after doing some research on um, one of my favorite creatures of the planet we, everybody, a lot of people point to the Pleosaurus as as the creature, uh, dinosaur-related wow. creature, because of the, the look, the shape, the fins, yeah, uh, some of the photos. Yeah. Now, I'm going to throw something out there. What's to say this isn't actually a giant octopus? And it, it, hear me out for a second. The reason why oh. I'm saying that is because octopus, uh, being extremely intelligent, um, can transform and become just anything they could they could change their shape um they could you know change their color they can camouflage very well i i'm i've seen octopus look like uh, a mini drone and then it opens up and it's it's actually an octopus um, sure sure i i know but, it doesn't fit the, the the general feel with the humps or whatever uh -huh. what have you but i mean you know, something with very large tentacles coming up and down, an octopus tentacles could could do that. Certainly could, but then you have to remember something else as well, which is, one, they've been seen on land, in the shape of that, right. in this pleasure sort of like shape, but two, octopus generally mimic something that's in their environment right. in order to convince the, the onlooker, or the predator, whatever, that it is that thing. So, if it was mimicking Pleasure, so. so then it has to be there. <laughs> no, well, that, that was that was I mean, part of the the, the problem yeah. with the octopus theory yeah. was the fact that it has to have a, a, a vehicle to mimic. Um, but you know, it does. I mean, it could have a long memory, and one, you know, through through generations, it's almost like Native American tales. Uh, throughout yeah. time, I don't. We don't know how these species act, or if they they act with their their offspring or whatever. They could. You know, mom could be doing that because grandma did it, and because great grandma did it. Yes. And basically, there's there's point A or zero where they saw the pleosaurus there. They became the pleosaurus to to avoid yeah. the predator, and it just got translated down the line. Just a theory. I was no, never no, really I, found fond of it, but the no, no, sure. <laughs> but this is the point, uh, Brian, you're making, and Ron is that you know you have to keep your mind open to everything. For me, I believe everything in life. Is simple. When you're looking for right. a, a, um, a complicated excuse to explain, because really what we're trying to do with the plesiosaur theory is um, it's because of 
of a philosophical um, worldview, we have to explain away this plesiosaur presentation. If there was no um, dinosaur extinction, if there was no um, geological column, geologic column, we wouldn't have to say to ourselves, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's the other. We would just say, oh, the plesiosaurs are still living. We've, we've got all these descriptions of them. We just need to find them now. It, it's a worldview that makes us make that explanation. Because otherwise, if they, if, they, if they are still living, how do we explain their absence? And right. geological geolog and I would actually say, um, you know, from a materialist uh, point of view, when you've already got the coelacanth, and you you seem to cope fine with that one, the only difference between that and a giant aquatic reptile is size and and uh, species. It's 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 just the same as finding a dinosaur alive swimming in the sea. No different. That's the in the geologic uh, timescale. Seventy was it sixty-five million years? That's what they're talking about with the coelacan. And yet, you know, all of this is really based upon one, an assumption that the, the, the fossil record is accurately uh, interpreted, and two, that we have all the fossils there are to find right. of all these creatures, which actually is a very scant record. It's mostly marine invertebrates, and then this tiny percentage of vertebrates on top that we're trying to piece together to... Um, to make some sort of explanation about what happened, but it is just philosophical. So I grew up in a, a church, and um, I would say my worldview would be a religious one. Now I have to check myself all the time when I'm researching this because I know how easy it would be in my worldview to accept these things based upon my worldview. Um, because if I've got a religious worldview, well, then sure, there's still dinosaurs, right? Right. But I still need proof. I can't just say I believe it. <laughs> Hey, St. You know, Columbus saw the Loch Ness Monster on the river. So, I mean, that, that's pretty good. Yes, exactly. And that, and, was, I mean, and that, that was documented. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's the thing that I really like to look at as far as research goes. It's the documentation. Um, we were talking about a sighting of something that looks remarkably like the Loch Ness Monster in the river Ness, not even in the lock itself. You know, I did right around, um, what was it, about 500, I guess, is what we're looking uh, at there. Um, and think, you, yeah. Or was it before 500? Um, um, I, I have it somewhere uh, correctly. I'll just bring it up. I, 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 I was say 525, but I could be wrong. It was um, 565 AD. Well, right, there we go. Well, we're close, within 60 years. Pretty yeah. cool. But, <laughs> but, you know, we have this sighting there. And if, also, if you looked at the pitch, pitch um, that's around uh, Loch Ness, we also see this, you know, this great type of um, what appears to be you know, a worm, for lack of a better word. But so there is definitely that um, precedent for something in those waters uh, going far beyond uh, the there definitely is, and I mean, all across the, the northern part of Europe as well. You have these similar um, orms, you know, serpent-like animals depicted all across Scandinavia as well, like mm -hmm. in like Storsjön and um, Storsjöturet or Storsi and some of this. There's depictions everywhere, and they're stylized. Yes, it exactly. is like I mean, what about the the the, the Piests and the Kelpies and no. Oh, that Irishy folklore side of things, so it'd be your realm as well, Ron. It's um, they're depicted in a very stupid time. And what about the Viking longboats? Uh, absolutely, with absolutely. this long neck, with the small head on top of it. 
that's right. That's right. I, I didn't. Yeah, it, the Dragon of the North Sea. That, that, well, that's what I was going to say. Whenever we look at the records from Lindisfarne, you know, you talk, you hear about reporting that the dragons were coming across the water, and this, you know, this all nothing is created out of. You know, we human beings like to borrow from people. We like to synchronize. And I think that when we start looking and investigating lake monsters from a very human perspective, it becomes far more complicated than talking about the survival of a prehistoric animal into present day. Yeah. You know, we're talking about something far, far reaching than just that possibility. Now, last year I wrote a book uh, entitled On Aquatic Monsters of the Great Lakes. Oh, wow. And I was looking outside, you know, yeah, on the Great Lakes. And so I necessarily had to begin with Loch Ness and, and then look at Lake Champlain and then to the Great yes. Lakes. And what's so obvious is all these lakes were formed around the same geological period between 14 uh-huh. and 10,000 years ago. Talking about all these things being formed and sightings of monsters looking, you know, very, very, um, uh, very much like it. Let's put it that way. So we have Lake Champlain, we have Lake Erie, which is you know up in part of my state here in Pennsylvania, and then we have the Loch Ness monster of these beasties that all have these long necks, these flipper-like appendages. What are we to make about this? Even the Native American populations around these areas talk about these serpents, and uh, we even find um, in the anatomy mounds of things that look. You know, very snake-like or very crocodilian that you know, is far away, you know, a thousand miles from the nearest crocodile. What do we do about this? Well, I just think sometimes it's important to just accept the evidence mm. because, once again, we're talking about we have an exclusion against this evidence in our, in our vernacular. We have a scientific exclusion. But really, I don't want to get too far into this because I don't feel well-qualified enough to talk about it. But... Um, I used to be a strong believer in the um, the dating system of the geolo- geologic column and, and Earth time. And even though I was religious, I, I, I guess I'd be what you call a theistic evolutionist, which is somebody who believed in God but believed that he did it through millions of years. That's what I used to be. Then I found out about um, correlation. Now, I, it's, I'm simplifying here because of my, my understanding of it, but essentially <clears throat> what I found out was that the geological column doesn't exist in any one place in that order anywhere in the world, that they have to correlate geological strata from one country to the next all around the world. Fine, no problems. But how do they correlate that? Well, they uh, use index fossils. And they say, okay, this uh, rock strata has in Argentina has this index fossil, and this rock strata in the UK has this index fossil. Therefore, they are the same age. You say, fine, okay, that's okay. How do you know the index fossil is that old? Well, because it's in that rock strata. And then I'm thinking, hang on a second. Wait a minute. That's circular reasoning. Then you're That's using right. them to date each other. So it means that the assumption of how it happened is necessary in order for you to make it right. Now, again, I'm not um, a geologist. I'm not qualified to speak about this. But that simple principle... I know it's more complicated than that. I understand that. But it, that's the end of... That's the defining principle beneath it. That just undid the whole thing to me. So I'm not coming from this thing from a religious perspective. That's not my purpose. But it at least gives me the freedom to say, well, actually, it's debatable that things haven't lived on. We still have much more work to do on that column before we can say this is 100% 
proof. Right, right. Um, we humans, we have this hubris to it. We don't like the, uh, leave a lot of gaps, right? We like to try to uh, cover our, 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 or have all the solutions that we think that we can. Um, you pointed out earlier in the program about, um, you know, not discovering all the fossils out there. I remember when I was a kid, we had about five dinosaurs to play with. You know, that's what we had. Now watching you know, Jurassic Park and things, the world has exploded by all of these new fossils that are being discovered. And I think that that is going to happen in the future as well, too. I think that eventually we will come across some very tantalizing fossils that probably, you know, closely even mirror more about what might be inside the Loch Ness. But we really don't know all the animals that went before us. Uh, that's that's very true, and yeah, like you say, in, in China especially, with the opening up of China, all the new fossils that have been discovered there, it's really amazing. Everywhere else in the world, and, um, I was talking to, to Todd Disitel uh, yes. from Temerley Dollar Bigfoot, and I interviewed him, and I asked him about this new, um, we mentioned the new study about the new missing link, and he said, it's not a missing link. He said, you know, these are, these are assertions, we don't prove anything in science, we, we look for facts. So with this, we're not offering you proof of another human or another ape. This is just what we found and we're looking into at the moment. Now, working in the medical field for, for um, 10 years almost, having lots of colleagues that were involved in lots of um, you know, high-tech research, medical research, uh, one of them first explained to me when I first got into it, they said, because uh, I love med medical tech, and I was talking to him about it, he said, Listen, we have to understand this. When we say scientists can now do X, Y, or Z, it means we started the research. <laughs> we started the research. And we hope to get this. This is we've created the theory about what we should be able to do with this. And ten years from now, you'll find out if we were successful or not, or five years or whatever. That's how these things work. They've rewritten things. All about velociraptors. They've got feathers now, <laughs> right? Yep. What about the feathered dinosaurs? And then other people say, well, actually, most velociraptors weren't even bigger than a chicken. Okay, fine. So maybe they were. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But then I'm perfectly um, willing to accept some dinosaurs can have feathers. But this is not the presentation from the first Jurassic Park to now. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it? Right. You know, this is a different kind of thing that we're looking at. Right. And then from. From you know, I'm 49 years old. So in the last 40 years, we went from believing that all dinosaurs were extinct. And this is this you know uh, climactic event 65 million years ago. To now the assertion that um, birds are the living relatives of dinosaurs, they never yeah. indeed did go completely extinct. So we have to well too. Yeah. So what yeah. we're talking about is the idea that again, if we're talking about the Plesiosaur theory, which I think Problem is, talking about 65 million years of evolution that went into this creature as well, too, if it is adapted to these freshwater lakes and uh, what it's capable of doing within that, that period of time, uh, you know, evolutionary wise and adaptation wise, it might be a very remarkable creature. Yeah. No, I, I, I think adaptation could be, obviously, we've seen within established species that are adaptation from island to island from locale to locale I used to talk about this for Bigfoot for example and the different types of Bigfoot around the world and how they would be adapted to their own environments in the same ways that you have a polar bear, a black bear, a brown bear a Kodiak, a moon bear a panda they're all bears 
they are fairly different to one another. Um, but it, it, obviously, bears on first sight, every single one of them. If you never heard of a polar bear, you only saw grizzlies. You'd know that that was a bear as soon as you saw it. Wouldn't think anything else. And I think it's the same with um, maybe what could be plesiosaurs living on in, in some bodies of water around the world. That they are probably of a variant of that plesiosaur species. That they may have changed somewhat over time, but I think still within its type, it would mm. still be very easy to distinguish it as a as a as a plesiosaur. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because um, because of of the ice melting uh, up in the uh, Pacific Northwest, the grizzly bear has been landlocked, and normally uh. it would it would get onto the ice and go to its its northern ha- habitat during the winter. So what's the polar bear? The polar bear? Uh, no, the polar bear. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's uh, right. But the uh-huh. problem is, and and the polar bear has been mating with the grizzly bear, and apparently there it's it's created this monster of of a bear just i mean like it's it's almost like the liger you know the lion tiger wow, thing yes. and this With thing the combination is combination of the both leads to something i mean it's it, it's uh un- incredible how big this this new species of a wow. bear is and what you just said was brilliant because you know, let the, let's say there was Pleosaurus there, and there was another type of creature there, and in order to survive, it adapted. Um, is is you know, uh, what was it? You know, if a monkey needed a tail, I remember in school uh, they grow a tail. Um, if it was life was that easy, I mean, it would be great. But yeah. uh, but maybe there is something to that that logic behind it that these creatures not only adapt but they change. So. The original creature that you you know was seen in the Patterson Giblin film, let's say, um, is not the same Bigfoot that you see now. There's a lot of talk about uh, this creature called the Dogman, which is a um, yes. basically a werewolf. But they, it's so, popular right now. It's yeah. you know, unfortunately it's hugely popular. It scares the hell out of me. But these things are apparently real uh, from a lot of the research, and I'm not going to go into that research of why I'm, I'm saying that they're more on the real side. But there's there's a variance of this creature. It goes from that, you know, um, Van Helsing movie, you know, 15-foot real werewolf to almost something that looks like a baboon, um, something that looks like a cross between a Bigfoot and a a werewolf. Um, Uh So maybe some of these creatures are adapting and surviving in their own own right. Um, It's it's just – it's pretty amazing that such a small group of islands in the the U.K., um, has so many of these creatures there, and yeah. and when you think back on it, um, I know I love the, the lore of King Arthur. I know Ron loves uh-huh. it too, because um, yeah. we were you know Ron has a, a new book coming out soon, and and he goes into a lot of the folklore and and on fairies. Oh, wow. um, but you know, we always heard about uh, dragons back way back when, right? Yeah. Everything in the UK was dragons. That's a black dragon. That's dragons, dragon. You know, these. Let's say, I mean, what's to say that it didn't come from a Pleosaurus or it's somehow, maybe the Loch Ness Monster um, is a dragon. It's just a water dragon. Well, yeah, I think things, I mean, um, these reptilian, uh, these reptile-like creatures, the big reptiles have been uh, seen all over the world, have been um, termed as being dragons of some kind. Look at China. How many different types of lung do you have? Oh, yeah. The water dragon, the sky dragon. I know 
it's hard to pick these things apart because oftentimes in folklore and in history they're inextricably linked with religious or spiritual um, subtext now same here with the wood woes we've got depictions of the large hairy man of the wood woes holding all of our churches and our abbeys and our medieval tapestries even before we knew about apes and anything like that in this country you know from the 13 and 1400s onwards and uh, there they are in these old abbeys still we've got some very old churches and abbeys still standing with these beautiful carvings of large hairy men carrying sticks and clubs and um, some of them have very conical shaped heads as well and then we have the green man myth of course and many people have described seeing a British Bigfoot or whatever it is over here actually described that they didn't see it and suddenly they became aware of its face poking out of the bushes but before that it looked like the bush was looking at them before it exited and stared at them and that to me it's you know it's amazing I was actually um, investigating a British Bigfoot sighting along the River Medway uh, which is a, a tributary to the um, uh, to the Thames uh, estuary and I it, was, it happened this Monday just past and it, it's um, this area is desolate it's just marshes and flat land and a few farms it happened along the back of a horse paddock and a lady who lives there she was she was feeding her horse that morning and several times recently she'd noticed that the horse's ears were turned towards the edge of the paddock which actually went down an embankment 30 feet into a disused rail line so it's used for industry, it runs all the way through that part of the country there to some old closed down factory. And she she did a recreation of it. What she saw, the, the thing walked along the back, along these bushes, had that large loping stride that you see. She didn't know how to describe it, but she did it perfectly. Almost looks like a hippie with his hands in his pockets with the big forward leg stride, <laughs> right? That with a sort of bent over back. And um, then she said, she saw it, it saw her, and its head, say its head, and just uh, below the neck was above a bush at the end, and then it ducked behind the bush, and her dog tore off after it, and it was gone. She got there, there was nothing there, no footprints, frozen ground. And uh, I stood by the bush, the bush is seven feet tall. So if it's a person, and she couldn't make out any details, she said, apart from the fact that it was all dark, that's all she could see. There's been many sightings around there, banging on things. A, a, a local couple I was taking to their house who've moved now, you know, they'd seen several of them walking around the place. Lots of different sightings. And yet, this is Britain in 2019. Yep. <laughs> right? And these, this woman, she doesn't know anything about Bigfoot. Her, their friends said that they had also seen something. They didn't know anything about it. It's not even the cryptozoologists in this country. Well, fortunes they are, but primarily, but the people who are also involved in this say, no, no way, it's not possible. And yet, here we have hundreds and hundreds of sightings. And I was investigating the sightings, I reported them in the book, I was dubious, but these days, I'm meeting more witnesses face to face and saying, it's not popular here, it's not like in the US where it's, it's a cool thing, it's popular. If you tell anybody here you've seen a Bigfoot, you're likely to be considered crazy <laughs> by, by your family, by everybody who knows you. And you would not go, not like an Nessie thing. That's no good for you anyway, publicly. You talked about rewards earlier. You don't yep. get a reward. Maybe the sun or the mirror gives you 200 pounds and the only get after that is black. Yep. You know, you just get attacked. Uh, the guy who saw the Lahoy once and photographed it, Ricky Phillips, I spoke to him. He's a number one Amazon bestseller military historian. 
he's a writer. He was down there taking pictures for his new book. His phone was full up, it's old, so he's using Instagram to get a few shots. He saw it, pinch and snap, uploaded it to Instagram. And all the researchers are saying, how come he didn't get a background shot? How come he didn't have it on his phone? Why didn't he delete some of the, the things on his phone to save it? He's not a researcher. He's just a guy who writes military books. He saw it and thought, oh my gosh, and took the picture. And yet, that scrutiny, that scrutiny that we give them. And yes, we have to scrutinize these things, but we have to remember that they are unprepared for that. And anybody who wants to be a witness, and I'll say this to all your listeners, think twice before you tell anybody, or at least be anonymous. <laughs> you know, if you're going to tell us, guys, we'll let you be anonymous, right, guys? We will not put your name out there because it's, it's one thing, you know, not being able to see what you saw, but it's another thing dealing with the the, um, the backlash, personal ramifications of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, we were definitely we love hearing the stories, and we do research. We definitely will keep your your name and, and very confidential um, yeah. because there is ridicule. I know that firsthand because oh, yeah. I have seen what I've seen as far as Bigfoot's concerned. Um, even my wife is just looking at me. My kids just shake their head. You know, and it's it's one of those things where you want them to experience it, but it, it's such an intense moment that um, you you don't want them because it would scare the hell out of them. Speaking of this 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 giant bipedal cryptid, um, this there was a lot of talk, and initially I never thought it, I didn't believe in it uh, about this being a a dimensional creature. Ron has just had an experience with footprints appearing when it was negative three or five or something to that. Yeah, effect. it was negative three right outside of my house, which is very, very curious. Now. It seems the more I do research into whether it be ghosts or UFOs or what have you, um, they seem to be attracted to the people that are looking for them. That makes sense. I put it this time and time again. At least you want to say it. I'm not sure if you find that. It seems like if you're looking for something, that something can end up uh, looking for you as well. You found that to be uh, the case in any of your investigations. Well, not usually. So I've been on quite a few leg expeditions. Um, yeah. but it's hard to bring the leg to a person, yes. Yes, yes, yes <laughs> but I've been on a few Bigfoot expeditions here as well. And I, I'm actually, this recent sighting that, that was um, made, I'm actually we're going to st- stake out that sighting, that, that location for a few nights mm-hmm. in the next few weeks. But when I was in Scotland at Loch Ness, when I went up that path into the Old Nacreche, mm-hmm. this deep, dark forest, like you said, in Pennsylvania, where it's just... Yep black you can't see light into the forest mm-hmm. this path is regularly walked upon during the um uh, during the, the summer months but there was nobody there so i was up there minus three celsius uh, all wrapped up but for four hours by myself there was no i didn't see one person i didn't hear an animal I didn't hear a bird tweet i didn't see a squirrel or a deer nothing so i'm up there and i thought oh, this is beautiful i've walked up to the top i'm not looking for bigfoot there at all and uh, I see a few trees have been pushed over onto the path. Now, I've been told that there are high winds in the area two days before I arrived. So I said, okay, high winds, fine. But they're right across the path in the two very consumers. And the root ball is sticking up. So yep. it's not snapped. I think, okay, that's fine. You know, just because a tree falls in the forest doesn't mean Bigfoot pushed it. Right. All right. That's not proof of anything. Trees fall and make funny shapes all the time. So, um, I walk on, I get to the top, I can't go any further. I can see there's some work being done on the upper path by the water companies. 
and it's a beautiful, really rural area. I see the lock and I start to come down. There's these beautiful waterfalls and all of the ground is covered in moss. It's beautiful. I'm about, I'd say the elevation was about, uh, that, about 90 degrees. And uh, I was near the bottom of a, a, a little waterfall. I was photographing up um, to the top and, and the waterfall because I thought this is a great angle. And in the corner of my eye, I see a figure go behind a tree. It was a millisecond. And I say to myself, okay, Andy, this is the thing you've been talking about. <laughs> if, if you really are stuck alone in this forest with something like that now, do you want to be here? Because remember, you think it's an animal and it has, and if it's stuck behind a tree, it knows you're there and it's following you. What are you going to do? And then I rationalized. I said, well, look, that's a corner. That's a flicker in the corner of the eye. That's something alerted you to look up. But at the same time, you didn't really see anything. Your mind can make up that detail. And uh, you've got to tell yourself that you have to be rational and say, that's not sighting. So I start walking back down, a little bit freaked out, because, of course, I'm, I'm now a monster hunter in a position of seeing a monster, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Which, no, you know, nobody truly wants when they're, when they're there. It's nice to talk about it afterwards, but not at the time. And then I hear a twig snapping and things moving through the deep forest at the side of me. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of deer in this area. Now yep. you could be interpreting. And it actually gave me a great lesson in the fact of how many people have had experiences that they just chalked down to deer and yes. was actually something else. And on the reverse, the flip side, how many people have had experiences with deer and other animals that they've chalked up to something bigger? That's right. That's right. Well, th this is what happened with me, and, and, and I will tell you, it, it's a very, uh, a very short little um, encounter. It's not really even an encounter. Um, I wanted to get up to go to work uh, one morning. It was probably about six thirty in the morning. I wanted to go turn on my car, and um, it was about negative three outside. You know, schools are canceled and everything, but I still have to get to work. Um, and as I opened up my front door on the uh, on the uh, uh, in the snow was um, a footprint. Uh, it was uh, probably about ten to twelve inches. Um, I put a dollar bill down uh, beside it for scale. I'm sure that we probably add this into the video as well. Um, but uh, it was completely barefoot. It was a barefooted uh, human human uh, footprint, and it was about probably six inches, maybe eight inches across the. Um, uh, oh, so it was well. Now, the starting thing about this was that the one track just simply appeared in the middle of my yard. There was no tracks leading up to it. It was just one right-footed right track that appeared. Um, and then, you know, uh, several paces later, there was another right-footed track, no left foot yet. Um, and then after a while, we see both sets of tracks uh, walking rather pigeon-toed. Um, and this goes on for a little bit. And then it just disappears. Uh, so I don't know what to make of that. Um, it it was it was something had stepped out of a door uh, with one foot and kind of jumped around a bit and then just stepped back into another doorway. So when we talk about portals and things of that nature, which is right. one of the things uh -huh. that I am very curious about, and I'm researching to this day. Yeah, we. we um, I, I don't know how to explain. There's no rational um, explanation why there was barefooted tracks in my front yard that had no beginning and no end. You know, I spoke to another investigator about this as well too. These tracks were not of a biological animal because you only see one track at a time. It did not move the way a biological 
Gwen would move, but also appeared in this. Yep. And, and this is where I was going with it before, because uh, initially I never thought of this, this, the Bigfoot creature, cryptid, as being interdimensional or, mm-hmm. or having um, um, mind speak. Uh, some people call it telepathic abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, through your research or, and through your, what you've found, I mean, do you think this is, a, is, a, is plausible, a possible or a possibility? Um, in this, in, with this, regarding this type of uh, cryptid, and and does it transfer over to some of the other cryptids that we're talking about, the beasts of Britain and and globally? Yeah, when we think about you know when we think about portals, water is as always been a, a natural type of portal area, especially when we think you know the King Arthur legend with the lady in the lake yep. and everything. Aren't we seeing we're not from this world, and these are kind of portals between this dimension and another dimension. Um, personally, I, I in Beast of Britain, I, I was just focused on what I thought were animals. I did include a few Black Shook reports, actually, and um, a few werewolf reports as well, um, because they could be an animal. They seem to be acting in animal-like ways. Um, I, I did write a, a little blog, actually, called Peddling the Paranormal, a Default Excuse for Uncomfortable Truths. It was purposely provocative, the title. But what I looked at in there was um, past um, past examples of people uh, interpreting things through their their uh, religious or spiritual worldview or philosophical worldview. Right. And um, I specifically talked about um, uh, what's his name, uh, Moctezuma of the Aztecs, yes. seeing Cortez come across the sea in his floating mountains and. Them having that legend about the, the bearded gods coming back from across the sea and basically just handing over practically his kingdom to him, which spelled the complete end of the Aztecs. Now, they couldn't possibly have imagined how those mountains floated across the sea or how the, you know, the gunpowder weapons of the Spanish worked and all these different things and technology that they had. It was the equivalent of an alien race essentially coming with high technology now and showing us things. Or if we were in the 90s now and somebody popped up with a smartphone and showed you everything in the yeah. world with a touch of a button, you'd be astonished. So I think sometimes our mind looks at things we can't understand, experiences we don't can't physically explain, and puts a spiritual prominence on them. Whereas mind speak, for instance, I think, uh, so with the, the great men of Ben McDwee in Scotland, some of the walkers who've been spooked out there say they have felt compelled to throw themselves off the cliffs when they've been running or they've heard this creature. They've, they've had this big fear build-up. Lots of people who encounter Bigfoot talk about feeling a big fear or dread before or afterwards. Yes. Infrasound, I think, is a good a good um, explanation for that because uh, tigers, they think, use it to stun their prey into... Uh, into uh, to, to make them um, uh, like statues, immovable. They use that to stun them. And yep. maybe these creatures can use it either to drive you off. I've heard of experiences here in the UK with Neil Young and his research partner. They actually gave me an infrasound recording below 20HC that they recorded in Harwood Forest where there's been several sightings. And he said sightings there too. And he said for some reason him and his research partner that night got freaked out. They decided to go back and sleep in the car. They didn't stay at a site where they knew they were having activity. These are really dedicated guys. 
Right. They're not like me running out of the forest. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> freaked out. And, um, and anyway, they came back the next morning, they collected the recorder, and there was the sound. And there's this really low elephant-like rumble. Now, they couldn't explain, one, why they felt like they had to go. They, they went against their, their normal researcher interests in not staying around when they thought something was there, and they just left without knowing why they left. And yeah. yet, that seems to have been taking place while they were there. So I, I imagine this, perhaps this sound has effects on your internal organs, on the way that your mind works, and perhaps it can, maybe they're not telepathically telling you to do something, but it, it invokes a response, a fight, a flight off, a fight mm. response. Yeah. Kind. I, I've been a very big proponent of, of infrasound being used by this, this cryptid uh, since the beginning, and not only to instill the fear in you, but there are there are wavelengths that and sound that can actually disrupt um, visual um, and the light spectrum, and oh. and and one of the things that I thought because every everybody says the same thing. I just read it a couple of days ago. Someone saw a Bigfoot down a down a, a a strip of trees, and someone's like, "Oh, great! Another another blurry photo of this." Supposed yeah. creature. Why doesn't somebody just take one for the team and run down there at it? Well, one, <laughs> one you don't know what it's like to come up against a 900-pound creature that can. Oh, I mean, nice. if, if a chimpanzee can rip your arm off out of your socket, beat you to death. The okay, and beat you, beat you to death. Beat you mm. to death. What do you think? Something that's thousands of times bigger than a chimpanzee uh-huh. can do to you. That being said, I always thought that when this creature, and I'm surprised. I mean. I, I, I don't know if it wasn't prepared or not, but I, I had a feeling, and I'm going to throw this out at everybody, um, that this creature uses infrasound to play on your fears emotionally, just like the like you mentioned with the elephants and tigers and, and what have yeah. you. But also, the reason why most people get blurry shots is when this creature is aware that somebody else is in its, its, its area, its realm, just like we talked about Loch Ness, where the people that live there know that something's out of place, so this, this creature is going to know something's up. It puts a protective uh, infrasound or, or, or shield around it. And, and it does so so that it cannot be seen. It blends into, the, into the, 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 the foliage. It camouflages itself with that. And, and that's why most of the photos that you get or video of this creature are uh, blurry or, or uh-huh. just distorted. And another case was we have a, a, something in this country, an eagle cam. And it was placed up in this nest, so you can look down on the I nest. I remember this one. Yeah. Really high. So yeah. you remember the footage. So the footage is, if you, if you were just looking at it and you're not focusing on the trees in the ground below you, you would miss the monkey that was, or the monkey-esque type of creature that's having a ball. Okay? This creature is totally unaware that that camera's there. And because it's unaware, it has no reason to put up its defenses. Therefore, you got the clearer shot of it. And I would love to be able to go to some place that has, we have a couple of spots that we're going to be going to investigate in where we, we've had our own experiences, our own sightings there. Uh, nothing came up on any of this full spectrum, infrared flare. I mean, it was just not there, I, but it was there. Um, I, I'd love to be able to put something up and test this theory out. Um, unfortunately, like most <laughs> researchers, we don't have the funds to actually get yes. you know well, the drones going and, and, and yeah. what have you. And and I think like a lemur, this creature has a, a film that comes over its eyes. It works better in the dark. It can see in the dark. 
Um, it, and I, that, that's, that's one of the other things, I, you know, I'm assuming. It knows when you're using a game camera because it can see the infrared, like those baby cameras that we have. We can't uh -huh. see that light because it's not in our spectrum. But this creature, somebody of the night can see, like, what's that big bright, bright light over there? And they know what they are. And they know exactly what they're doing with it. And they break them. Every time you see one of those game cams, it's like you're lucky if you get a Bigfoot in there. But it's usually crushed or fall on the floor. They're very you know, smart. I was just going to, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, I, I think those are really good theories, actually. And um, talking about the game cam aspect of things. Well, if you talk about the blurry photos, first of all, right. I wonder if we all switch to analog means of capturing footage again, if that would be different. I think it's better on analog. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. McGrath, I, I've been actually uh, espousing that idea for years. Oh, That's wow. absolutely... What was the human film so clear? I think that we are dealing with something technologically I truly do. I think the digital just not the great way to capture these things. I've truly been saying that for years. Definitely. Well, and in that case, I, I think you know that that would be a, a great idea. I definitely endorse that. Um, of course, I have to get somebody to develop them, but that's that's okay. Well, you know, <laughs> and, uh, if we can know, get on this, top of that, yeah, I was going to say, if we can get this going, just make the check out to Andy McGrath. Ron Murphy and Brian Bode for starting that, that Kodak Fuji thing digital and film back up again. That's right, that's it. right. I'm always up for research buddies, by the way, just to, yes. so you know that and everybody knows that. Um, it's because we shouldn't go out alone. I do go out alone quite often. And actually, I realize when I'm doing it that it's not the safest way to do things, not just because there may be something you don't know that's out there. You might have a fall, you might have an accident. You could encounter some nutbag in the forest, you know. Right, right, <laughs> right. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. You know, that's that's the best way forward for anybody listening out there. Yeah. But um, talking about this this whole thing as well about so we, um, talking about Bigfoot seeing the infrared cam, seeing the game cams, even if not seeing the infrared. If you came into my house and you took one of the books off the shelf and replaced it with a different book, I would know something was different just from the yep. moment I walked in. And they're all yes. books. Right, they're just normal books, and yet somehow I know something is off because that's my living room. The forest is its living room. So if you put this game came up and you're using some horse scent or some musk to disguise things and <laughs> tramping through the forest, all your footprints yep. and breaking branches and bending leaves of grass and and twigs, it's like um, it's like uh, it's like, it's like there's been a party as far as this thing is concerned. That's what I think. You leave a massive. Um, a massive signal of your presence and it can be seen everywhere to something that lives in that environment yeah think about smell alone i mean you're bringing with your cam yeah. you know i live in a big hunting state and you can buy the stuff where you try to wash your scent out of your clothes and everything but just the idea of bringing you know uh, uh, an indoor scent in the outdoors that will linger for a while i mean it, it, we're not very clandestine even at our very best. You know, you would have to be in the forest for, for weeks um, without bathing, which is, yes. you have to get yourself really gamey in order to, yeah. <laughs> to get rid of the, the, you know, the modern day, everything on it. And, right. you know, some of the, some of the things that people don't realize is, you know, um, a lot of the, like when you bring, I'm sure you t travel with your phone. Cause I know you do, you do, do video, um, yeah. most of the electronic devices, even though you can sense it, they, there are 
there are waves that are given off by these these devices. It's almost like little vibrations. And if you're hypersensitive to certain things, um, it's you, you just you just pick you pick up on it. One of the greatest examples of what I'm talking about is for all the ladies that are are watching and listening to the broadcast. Um, if you've ever been pregnant, you can tell that someone's cooking beef like 16 miles away. Yeah. The, the nose on a, on, a, on a female who is who is pregnant is just Who's cutting outs- cucumber. Everybody in the street <laughs> stop cutting cucumber. Stop cutting it. They just they just know and my I mean my wife was just like get out of the house. You know, she she would say, you know, like Oh, I could smell you were, you know, in the city or whatever because you know, when I used to work down there. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, you know, we, we discredit the fact of the intellect and the intelligence of the longest running uh, hide and seek champ. Um, yeah, and, and you know what? Sometimes you just don't want to be bothered. It's like it's almost like putting up a do not disturb sign. I don't want to interact with you. Well, yeah, whenever you talked about infrasound, one of the best evolutionary adaptations that uh, that you can develop is the idea of infrasound because you can be territorial without being confrontational. Nobody has to see you. You right. see them. You simply alert people of your presence uh, through some sort of feeling, and that's the way to be. I think that whenever we get deeper into this, because you can't just look at these things as flesh and blood because even if they are flesh and blood, they are corporeal, tracks behind there is something to them uh, you know biologically that sets them apart from everything else the idea of being elusive is one thing but to really kind of explain that elusive away from a scientific perspective does require you to go a little bit deeper a little bit below the surface but I think infrasound makes a great um, that, that's a great way to explain why these things are staying hidden and why we don't see them all the time and the reason why we know so much about infrasound, especially here in America, is because it has a military component to it. You know, you're able to um, to interact with the enemy without causing any kind of um, uh, mortal damage, but yet you're keeping them out of your particular zone. It's ingenious, and we know that this exists because animals around the world have this. You know, this is a biological fact, and why something like a, a Bigfoot or a moose could not have developed this over time is, uh, is, is you know, it, it boggles the mind. I think that this is the reason why these animals are able to stay elusive. Now, when we talk about the idea of not being able to uh, appear on digital, we're dealing with something a little bit different there. We're talking about a frequency and something that might be a little bit more metaphysical, although it could have a biological component as well. So, But for right now, it seems metaphysical because we really can't explain it. Yeah. I was just going to comment on one thing there. You know, when Ron was talking about in the military aspect, that's a psychological operations unit. They actually use it. If you want to see what they can do and how they do it, look at what they did to Noriega. Um, <laughs> and then look, also look what they did actually in, in Iraq. Um, they were able to be not even in the area, and they can literally put sound in your foxhole or in your ear as if they were talking right next to you. And they were saying things. They were whispering, you, sh- you should give up. Right. And and the thing about the human mind, if there's a blank space, we will fill it in. We'll fill it in with whatever we want or whatever kind of sound we want. All we have to do is put out the possibility of something being out there. And we're very good at filling in the blanks. 
Yeah. No, I think that's that's right. It's like a painting sometimes, you know. It's it's not really what the painter paints, but what he does or she doesn't paint that gives you the impression of what the picture is. That's right. And the old mind is making it that detail. So when you get some of these um, trick photos or magic eye photos, obviously it's been painted in a certain way to make your mind work in some way. It works for some people, doesn't work for others. But suddenly, and maybe this is the same, I always thought with Bigfoot, um, all the descriptions have sort of dark, uh, blackish, auburn, brown, and gray streaks in the fur. Lots of different streaks when they look at it closely. Uh, when the sun hits it from a certain direction, then it looks kind of auburn or it looks kind of silver. And I think there's something about the fur that allows it when it's standing still, you know, when it's when it's holding its position, it's disguising itself in the forest to just step out and, and almost seem invisible to our eyes because of the way we look for things. It breaks up the line of the figure. There's right. these different colors, uh, or these different strips of, of color you see in the fur sometimes. I forgot the technical. Yeah, I forgot the technical term for that. But they, this is the type of same type of thought process when we look with our children up at the sky, like, oh, that's a dragon. Yes. And you just your mind is going to go to what you know. Yes, exactly. exactly. But there was a great Yowie Hunters report of uh, a mother and daughter on horseback seeing a juvenile Yowie and an adult Yowie uh, near a creek, and they found a footprint, and they were trying to cast it. The water gone. The daughter had gone back to get uh, some more water because they'd run out of water. <coughs> Excuse me. And she'd seen the juvenile just standing really close up to a tree with its arms around it. And she didn't see it until it made a little sort of panicky grunt. She was about five foot tall, all dark. But she said it stood out from the tree, but she didn't notice it until it made a noise. And then she turned and saw it just completely stood still and set against the tree. She rides off. She gets the mother. And then they try to, to ride back. And they, she goes back. She loses the saddlebag. She goes back. And she sees the big one. You know, and the big one is just literally standing with its its arms up like somebody's been running it's taking sort of a, a breather against the wall against this tree and leaning forward completely still with its head turned to the side and they don't notice it this huge huge creature until it suddenly turns its head a little and then they see it and yet there it is you know this giant ant you know that kind of thing in the forest it's got that feeling to it you're not your eyes are not looking for what you don't expect to see right and 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 we you know back in the seventies when when um, the movie The Exorcist came out, um, my one of my cousins, my my parents' cousins, was in the uh, the uh, music business, and the reason why that movie was so successful and so scary is the audio engineer had a, I believe a degree in in, um, in in audio production, and what they did was it was the first movie to start using infrasound. And I believe it was, I'm thinking, I want to say anywhere from 14 to 8 uh, megahertz or, or, or de- you know, uh, that was, that's uh, the level. Yes. And what yes. happens is, and we, I've played around with this too, where there's certain different decibels levels that you can't really, you can hear it, but you're not hearing it. It's almost like that dog type of scale. But when yeah. you start playing it, if you, if you had different rooms set up with these different decibels, when you went into this room, it would just give you the uh, the chills, the the you know, uh-huh. like you would just like I gotta get out of here. Um, yeah. And it used that in the movie at certain scenes to ramp it up, and people didn't know that they like a psychological operation was technically being played on them through the soundtrack. 
it makes sense. I mean, we know that, as you said earlier, with the, the military things now, that um, such weapons are even on, on um, available to police forces to yes. test those crowds. You know, there's a little dish that you just aim at the crowd and, and give them the sound. And if they're a certain age, it, um, it affects them. But on top of that, um, the music industry has been playing around with this kind of thing for a long, long time as well as the film industry, it makes perfect sense to me. There's something at the beginning of the original um, Omen movie. Now, I thought it was the way that Jerry Goldsmith plays the intro there, but actually there's something that hits you in the chest about the intro. Right. Just the way the music comes in and the, um, the deep sort of baritone vocals. I always thought that was a bit strange. You know, how come I'm so creeped out by this when I, it really is just a movie I've seen you know, it's older than me. I've seen I want to watch it numerous now. <laughs> times. It's such a great movie. One yeah. and two, anyway. And, um, yeah, just a great movie, great soundtrack. And that's got something to it. It's the same with Jaws, watching Jaws again recently. John Williams, the king of, of creating feelings through sound. But there's a lot to it in resonance as well. And you can do that when you're singing. You can, um, you can use your voice in a certain way to make it carry further. And oh. it will have an effect on people. 100%. And then you combine that with the visual, and then you have the perfect storm. And, and yeah. this is what we have with, I think, this cryptid. And, and you know, and this is why it's so elusive. Um, you know, you have, you have stories of, of big black cats in there. Um, you also have stories, and when we go back to Dogman again, again, this creature is very elusive. It just disappears. So the thought of it going interdimensional and also having, a lot of people have reports that when they, when they see a, a dog man, they have nightmares. It's like it's in their head. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I mean, I was pretty up close and personal with one of these about 25 yards out of what we thought was. And my buddy's like, get in the car, man, get in the car. <laughs> um, and what was it? We we don't know, but we have a lot of howls on the tape. We were actually by a cemetery in New York State, um, Letchworth Village. We caught it howls. We actually caught. Um, you talk about tree structures. When it comes to dog man, uh, the general research is it doesn't build a tree structure like a Bigfoot would with the leaning trees and the intersecting. This thing took. I mean, ginormous trees and literally off the ground. They're hanging up. Ball, you know, a uh, root ball in the air. It's, it's, it looks like an umbrella. Wow. And it's, the, it's the reverse. It's, it's almost um, the reverse of what a, what a Bigfoot would do on the ground. And, um, and then later that night when we go into the car, this thing was just sitting there. And unless they have a gigantic Great Dane out there in this area, which they didn't, um, it was just staring at us. Wow. Um, was this on all fours? No, it was, went on, it was sitting down. It was on its probably yeah. haunts. Like it would look like it was sitting. Uh, we could see the eye shine. Sitting, it was probably about six foot tall. Wow. And it's just sitting there watching us. And, and I happened to be, my buddy's, um, it, it was about 25 yards off where the car was on a, another path, like a nature trail. And I'm, I'm seeing and I'm watching. I'm not taking my eyes off of it. I actually had a urinate. It was a very cold night. So I'm doing something that you should not do, people. Let me just tell you right now, don't do this. Because if we're talking about canines, um, I'm marking territory right now. And I'm telling that animal right there, I'm the boss. I'm doing an alpha. and I'm, Oh, wow. You took a pee. Yeah, and I uh, right in front of it, and I didn't stop. And I kept, and then the problem we had, my, you know, my buddy uh, Al was there with it. He's, he's watching this, and he's getting his stuff in the car. I have, I still have my machetes on and, and whatever, and it's just watching us. And the next thing you know, it kind of like went down low. It disappeared. And at that wow. point, 
that's when I we that's when it hit me like we need to get in the car. Yeah. Um, be, yeah. It, it may have had enough, maybe, but there was no. It wasn't aggression, no nervousness. Um, I think this thing was like, wow, these, this, whatever this human being is, he's freaking crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, now there's a couple points about the story there, uh, Brian, is because in my research for a dog, man, and I'm not sure if that's the same with you there, Andy, but I won't get to the bottom of it. A lot of times they are associated with the graveyards uh, that they are found around. I mean, even throughout history, we have Anubis, uh, which is the goddess of the, you know, the, of the, of the god of the dead. Uh, in American Indians uh, lore here in the United States, we find uh, dogman type uh, creatures associated with Indian burial mounds. Do you find the same thing there in Britain, Andy? Do you find um, these uh, dogmen associated with particular graveyards? Well, there's only there's only two uh, sightings actually associate with the same graveyard uh, everywhere else it seems to be uh, in certain patches of the country up north in, in Hull and Yorkshire and places like that um, but this particular one uh, which was I think originally reported uh, by Linda Godfrey the werewolf of Camberwell I, I went to that graveyard Old Camberwell Cemetery um, in, uh, in South East London and it's it was built in the 1800s. It's got 300,000 people in it, and wow. it's it's next. It's a little way away from the new cemetery. Then you have um, Wells Park, Cater Park, and Sydenham. Um, uh, sorry, Crystal Palace Park, a very big park, very green part of London. And there's been sightings in all these different parks of Bigfoot-like creatures and big cats and things like that. So this fellow, you might have heard this story a few times. He's it's October. It's 1996. He's cutting through this old cemetery. Now there's 10 acres of forest in the cemetery. It's an old place and it's also very woody. When I was in there, the graves were overgrown with leaves and trees and the forest had kind of creeped through the graveyards, the older part of it. So he's cutting through anyway and it's night time and suddenly he's grabbed by something really strong. He's slammed into the ground and this creature with a head like a German shepherd is looking at him and, and slobbering and growling and sniffing his body up and down. And then just as quick as it started, it sprints off in its back legs and its hind legs. And he says that he believed he was spared because he suffers from a disease that dogs can smell. Um, which is strange that that was the conclusion that he, he got out of that. You know, one of those mundane details that sort of is a, it's a catch-all for me. Then again in 2004, uh, an Irish lady had moved to, to London, is walking past the cemetery with a friend. And on the corner of the cemetery side of the road, she hears a really loud, weird noise, and they, they both turn to look at the girls, and a large tree in the corner of the cemetery is shaking violently. This is something really powerful shaking it with all its might, and they can hear um, like a, a weird, low, growling noise, and they, they run away. In fact, they run in separate directions. That's how scared they were. And she had no interest in this subject at all. She became interested after this sighting, and she never walked past. She said she never, ever walked past that graveyard again. She doesn't live in the neighborhood anymore, but the entire time she lived there, it's a big place, this graveyard. She I, never walked past. It's it's very interesting that the, the association between graveyards and these creatures are is and, and death, the underworld, is is really tight. Um, where we had my, my experience, literally we were no more than 100 yards from from a graveyard and it was an old graveyard with unmarked bar, uh, bodies in it um, 
uh, through an old hospital. So um, I can attest that that this creature is in New, at least in New York State, um, it is hanging out by graveyards. Now, I don't think anybody has come up with the theory of why it's so attracted to it. Maybe it's because there are there are holes in the ground. There's bones. Maybe they they're actually and I'm going to say this, chewing on the bones, and it's a food yeah. source. But actually, the first thing I thought about when you, you asked about why, and I never thought about why, actually, was maybe it's a smell. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, same thing. The, 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 the caretaker, whoever it was, it says I, I suffer from a disease that, that um, these animals can smell. I mean, I, the first thing that came to me was the dogs that can detect cancer. But That's what he's saying. Yep, I suffer from a disease that dogs can smell. Maybe that's why he left me alone. Right, and maybe it's it's... It knows that the meat is tainted, or or something to that effect. Um, yeah. I'm I'm still to this day <laughs> very very shocked that nothing else happened of that 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 nature. To I mean, me, that's an extraordinary sighting. Six yeah, foot tall, sitting down. It was sitting down. It was about six foot tall, and and I know the reason why I can do this is I grew up around dogs and dog shows. Um, I've seen any dog you can think of. I've actually seen sitting down, standing up, and what have you. And when you get to the, ta- the the largest dogs there, between the Great Danes and what have you, um, this was taller than a Great Dane sitting, wow. and and, and um, uh, a Saint Bernard and what have you. It had the bulk of a Saint Bernard, but um, it was tall, and you just saw the you just saw the glow of the eyes. Um, it wasn't yellow or red; it was just eye shine. Yeah, and yeah. It, it just it was it was a very unusual experience. This is one cryptid that I definitely don't want to really meet up close and personal ever again, yeah. <laughs> uh, at all. Um, I don't care. You know, there's some talk on the on the internet through the armchair um, theorists out there that uh, these things aren't that aggressive, and there are plenty of people that escape. You know, I, I got to be honest. I'd rather be trapped in a room with with rabbit, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? chihuahuas. You know, six rabbit chihuahuas <laughs> than, than, than one rabbit pit bull. Um, I'll, I'll take my chance at this point. This is this is a killing machine. It's just like a great white. It's just like a, a polar bear. Um, what well, the other thing you've got to think yeah. about is before is that all the people have said that it didn't attack them. There were people who came <laughs> back, right? Yeah, well, it, just because you didn't get attacked doesn't mean it's not aggressive. Yeah. See, it's not aggressive because we've never heard of anybody saying it attacked them. Well, maybe we never heard of, from those people again. Yeah, they're missing. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we, we never heard of them again. But one of the yeah. things that I loved about this cryptid versus um, a Bigfoot or, or a Sasquatch is the fact that these things literally, it seems like they really know what they're doing and they love targeting humans. They lay prey on the fear. And I don't know if there's an energy associated with the fear, kind of like Monster Inc., where they're, they're recharging batteries. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, they, they, they will go you up to your house. you got Sally and Mike out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, trust me, if I saw that in the middle of the night, I'd scream like a baby too. But, you know, they, they'll go to the front and the back door and they'll jiggle the handle and they'll tap on the window. And they love peeking into the rooms. Yeah. Um, you and get that a lot with Bigfoot as well, though. Women yeah. living alone—that's what. Or children in the forest. We we get a lot of sightings made by children Definitely. in the forest, or uh, banging on the, the the walls or the doors of women living alone in the countryside, rural settings. Um, yep. it, it happens a lot, and of course, I think it's less intimidating than than men. We have to admit that, even in our modern world, that that's the general set of things. Well, that males are more uh, likely to be carrying weapons or to be hunting or uh, things like that. 
when it gets to the ladies, though, I, 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 I always throw in the fact that even with females in the youngest stage, maybe, I mean, their sense of smell could be huge, these, these cre- creatures. Females do do things monthly that can be, yes. you know, uh, and yes. they can be yeah. picking up on it, and they know what, you know, a female is. Uh, versus a male who has more of like a you know like oh my god you look like you smell like you've been working in a fish factory for twenty years <laughs> you know there's a big difference here. Question on that actually if um and I because we don't have bears here I, I don't actually don't know this bit of information if um if women are in their time of the month and hiking in bear you know um oh, popular bear areas are they normally advised against it or, or does it have any factor into the their presence there at all? I, I don't know. I mean, I would think we were so stubborn that we wouldn't listen anyhow, um, yeah. being the, the crazy Americans. But that's a good question. I mean, like, um, I don't think women want to be limited in what they can and can't do. And I don't think they even think of the fact of what's going on. They just think of it as a daily routine. It's like, oh, it's just... Yeah, of course. Yeah. But absolutely. they don't realize that, you know, an animal smelling this and they're smelling what they smell is, you know, like, oh, lunch. Um you know. Yes, I mean it's it's it is you know and it is blood, doesn't it? So yeah. we don't need to be for the listeners that they don't need to be crude or descriptive. I, I just wondered no. if that's part of the. Um, I'm, I'm getting to the bottom of it right, right now. You know, yeah, this that, that's a great. Let's see here. Uh, uh, okay, the um, National Park Service says. Uh, that you should take an informed choice if you're going to be camping in bear country when you're menstrual period. So, Andy, you are absolutely honest with good describe. Oh, wow. The service says make an informed choice before going out of the woods on that. How about that? Bingo, bingo. Good for the parks department. Yeah. Because, of course, I mean, um, that's, um, that makes sense to me. Sorry for any uh, the lady listeners out there that, that was a bit uh, crude for them, but it just as a technical you know, it's a technical consideration. Um, I, I did wonder about that. Well, and, and, and again, I'm with you. We're not trying to be crude here, but this is what we do as researchers. You have to start, you know, manners have to go out the door in, in, in a lot of this because you have to think of every possibility. And these yeah. are these are very. It's important to understand. This is why I'm trying to tell my children: you need to read because you need to be well versed in everything. Right, um, yeah. and this this is also the reason why most of my children won't be seen in public with you too. <laughs> <laughs> dad, yeah. I'm very very proud of their dad. When I met them in um, Kentucky, they seemed very proud to be there. And is your your daughter a researcher? One of them is doing some kind of research too, or filmmaking, or something. One. Well, yeah, she's into uh, into photography and everything. And, yeah. I, and I'm I'm, I'm very uh, very proud that you said that. But they will admit to me, admit to people that I'm their dad if they're not in the same state. <laughs> yeah, I don't know him. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know who this guy is. Security, no, no. You know, take somebody him. Somebody asked me the other day, do you have many discussions about um, this with people in your local area, with, with the parents and the school? And sometimes, you know, my oldest tells people I've, I've gone off to find the Yeti, and I think they just kind of <laughs> think she's playing around. And I said, no, I don't talk to the other parents in the schoolyard about it at pickup time. And they said, why not? I said, because I want their kids to play with my kids. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, that's right. If I give them that baggage, that's my baggage. They shouldn't have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, you were very kind to my children, and you actually gave them uh, returns. 
Gustavo. I'm so enamored. Every everyday citizen, and I want to buy beast of Britain merchandise. McGrath, how can I go about doing that? Oh, well, I mean, there's there's several things. So you can get T-shirts on on Amazon, beast of Britain T-shirts on Amazon. There's there's plenty of links on my Facebook page and on my website, which will be live on Monday or Tuesday, in fact, beastofbritain.com. Um, you can also buy the book. Um, the map has just come out, and there's other types of single merchandise from the map as well. The individual creatures are available in poster form as little phone covers, as mugs, as travel mugs. There's all wow. these different types of things you can get. Um, you know, that that's great for me because obviously it's completely self-funded. It is full-time. Yep. And it's not, uh, if for anybody out there thinks we're here to make money, Ron and Brian, we can tell them that really, <laughs> if we were to, here to make money, that we would have failed at this point. Oh my God, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I um, wish we could. It's not about that. Yes, that would be great. Mm. But um, I mean, I think we would straight away just check it straight back into research personally. Even if we made a lot you, of you money, know, it would just go straight to the research parts. Prior to the show, Ron and I were talking about different things, and and we were talking about we really need to get a studios um, because we although we do get together, um, there's a lot of times where we have to be parents first, you know, and and I know you yes. know that too. Um, yeah, of course. But it'd be great to you know we need a real production crew and stuff. And it's like oh we need someone to pick us up. You, you, we don't have the money to, for all this, so a lot of research is self funded, and right. something so fantastic. And I'm going to hold this up here. I, you know, this is your bio. This is your, your the bio that we have from you that you you provided us as well. I knew about it and I've read it before, but you definitely should go out to to, to pick up a copy. It's a fantastic read. Yeah. You know, right. it's I, enjoyable. Yep. Well, I I think whenever you talk about what you're going to have as a searcher, Coleman's uh, uh, what is it? Cryptozoology A to Z, which is you know one of those things that you have to have. Uh, and then this book, *Beast of Britain*. I, I truly believe those are two must-haves because it, it provides you with an encyclopedic amount of information. Uh, and as any good researcher has to have, is that library too. And, and I will tell you, I am better for having a, a piece of Britain on my shelf. Oh gosh, I mean that's a huge compliment. Now, it's only my debut title. I'm actually. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm releasing the second edition in February, so there's lots of new chapters, there's lots of new photos, and it will have the piece of print map as the main cover now, it'll be a different cover. Because like, there was a few things I discovered since doing the first one um, that were perhaps not inaccurate, but needed um, improving upon, and there were lots more stories I heard too. So there'll be a cheaper version of the book um, out at sort of mid to, to late February, um, which will also have a lot more content in it. Um, and then I think during March at some point, I'll, I'll take the first edition of the book, uh, you know, away from availability. So that's only going to be there for a little while. It's, you know, somebody like you, Ron, has written so many books, and I, I don't have any of them yet. I will have. And there's a few on my Amazon list. They're waiting. Um, I've, I do have a backlog of about 10 books I'm supposed to be reading, and I told myself I wouldn't buy until I get <laughs> a few more books read. Uh, but ironically, when you're doing this stuff all the time, somebody was asking me about podcasts earlier, have you listened to this or that recently? So I don't have time to listen to podcasts anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm too busy writing stuff and, and doing them. And um, it, they're definitely on my list. I, I just think for people, it's um, 
it's an unusual subject, Britain, because people don't think of it as a country that contains more than Messi and, and things like that. And it really does have so much to offer. It's just the first segment. I'm looking at your beautiful nation next, and I'm already putting some chapters down. And it'll go all over the world. And if we manage to sell the TV series, then that will follow each book. And we'll just take it around the globe. And, and I hope to be privileged to at least show everybody some of those beautiful sights, you know, in my own country and others around the world if we, um, if we manage to get together at some point this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. I think that you deserve to have, you know, th this show as a go. Uh, you are one of the most nicest, most humble people I've ever met. And I wish you all the best. I actually, the time we spent together, it just completely flew by. But, um, I mean, you're intriguing enough to, I would like to, you know, watch this, what you're up to next. And I hope that this all goes well for you, my friend. I really do. Thank you. Thank you, good, And thank you for having me on. I, I love it, as always. I could talk about this forever. I know you guys are going to go, but I could talk forever <laughs> about this subject. And um, it's just been it's just been awesome. Thank you so much. Right. Well, now, what, what is the website going to be? Is it going to be beastofbritain.com? That's it, beastofbritain.com. I've just been working on putting it together. A lovely guy uh, from the Explorers Group, Liz Sinkovich, has put, put it together for me. That's going to be live Tuesday. I'm just literally transferring the keys over. So it's done. Right. It's just waiting to come up. So two days, it should be out. Excellent. And you can get your book on there, the poster, the mugs, and all other kind of right. Right, right. All merchandise, all books, every single thing will be there. And you, you can find out how to book me too. So just very quick, I, I am doing talks and conferences this year and next year. If you want me to speak, just send me an email, andyromagrath at gmail.com, or go on the Facebook or the site and, and contact me there. And and that's very important because you want Andy actually at your, your events. You want him to speak. Um, he's fantastic <laughs> when he when it comes to that as well. Um, but what, what I wanted to say to you is, you know, and Ron said it, um, I think you're one of the better and, and probably one of the best uh, out there doing what you do uh, for curiosity's sake, for for you know historical sake, and and you know, um, it's it's refreshing to meet people that are such wonderful individuals and human beings, and and have a great approach to life in general, uh, um, and and are pretty much telling everybody just get out into the into the woods and 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 you know put the phones down, put the TVs down, go out with the family. Yeah. Right. Um, explore your own country, your own area, and when you come, and when, and when you know, Beasts of North America comes out, um, you're you're now part of the Goblin universe. You're welcome here Thank anytime, you. even if you want ten ten minutes. Like, hey, I just want to come on and say X, Y, and Z. Please, anytime we're doing it, we'll do it. You're more than welcome. You you have the full keys to the to the homestead. Make yourself Thank at home. You. Bring the family with you too, because you know our kids like to play as well. <laughs> I mean, we, we would love. I'm, I'm, I do plan to bring them to the US, maybe in 2020, but depending on how the move goes, you know, if, if yep. that goes ahead or not. But generally speaking, I just think say to everybody out there, yeah, get out into the woods. If you're going to take your phone, make sure you're taking pictures or recording something, you know, and not calling somebody and, and looking at Instagram and. Take a buddy with you, whatever you do. Take yes. a buddy with you whenever you get outside because, um, you know, even the normal can be dangerous from time to time when you're all alone in the woods by yourself. That, that's definitely the truth. And just tell somebody where you're going at least. Yes. So at yeah, least they yeah. have a, a, a hundred thousand acres to look. For. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's right. And it's, it's much easier finding two, just one. Yes. 
Definitely easier to All find right. two than one. That's right. Uh, Andy, uh, you can never be in a bad mood whenever you're around. Thank you for uh, your falling into Inside the Goblin Universe with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Brian, this was an excellent show, my friend. I think this is a great way to welcome back Startup the Mayhem. Um, it, I, Andy's just fantastic. He's wonderful. Um, part of this, what we're doing here now and and the way we're approaching everything, if I, if you may, if I may, Ron, is inside the Goblin Universe is is this world that we live in. We're going to try to break this up into little segments here and there, and doing other things. We have um, portals of perception where we're going to start talking about things where your mind is more involved in it. It's it's how to better yourself and how to stay positive, and and some of the things that they play on the psyche. If I'm correct. I, I, that's right. That's right. And then we that's have an, an, yeah, it, and then we have another thing that we, we want to do. We want to do like these little bits and pieces where Ron and I go out and if we find something interesting um, and we just do a little talk on it. I mean, we're literally like it could be five minutes. It could be 15 minutes. But we call it Sideshow Safari because, frankly, <laughs> everything we're doing in the paranormal is a sideshow. If this, you know, they, they you know, Barnum, would, he, he bought a, a mermaid at one point. Um, that mysteriously vanished in a fire that was a mysterious fire in New York City, if mm-hmm. I was correct. So, I mean, we're trying to do all these different things here. Ron has a great book. If you want to learn more about Lake Monsters on Lake Monsters. I'm, the one, that that right. book is going to be the next one. Oh, here I am now. I'm working on <laughs> Oh, no, no, that's good. No, um, actually, you know, I'll, I'll send you a copy. I'll tell you what. I, I, I would love to have the new book that you're putting out. So we'll exchange copies, my friend. Okay. Yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll, uh, um, do you have my so, address? I'll, I'll message you my address. Message me yep. uh, your address, and I'll be able to put that out. Um, but, uh, yeah, like Brian said, we're trying to really network with all of our listeners. We built a pretty good audience, a pretty good tried and true audience that stuck with us. And I really want to get the information out to them. Uh, and we learn as much more listeners as we do from our guests. I'm sure it's the same with you, uh, you know, and you know, people and it really expands just a little more and more so we're looking to share as much with our, our listeners as much as of they course. share with us and, and vice versa is what advice not vice versa vice versa sorry um, I will share it far and wide when it comes out of course I will um, and I appreciate the same thing good to see I've been very relaxed to this whole thing I, I didn't realise I was turning the camera on there actually but <laughs> I seem to have gone now you, you're um, good but, yeah I was very relaxed it was very enjoyable you know, uh, me and Ron, we had a great time, Brian, at the, the um, at Kentucky. By the time I got to you, I was, um, I think I was eight flights in by the time I got to you. Yeah, Ron, yeah, yeah that's right. That's and I right. had that crazy taxi driver, you remember? The one who <laughs> was going to fight, um, oh, what's his name, the boxer who fought the cage fighter recently. Um, oh, God. Oh, Oh, the, the uh, Irish. Floyd, Floyd Mayweather. Yeah. Oh, Floyd Mayweather. So <laughs> this taxi driver tells me that he's got uh, six kids, three of his own, three from a relationship his wife had with another man, and then her and the other man, they ran off and left him with all six kids. <laughs> he's, he's my wow. age, like 40-ish, 40-ish, and basically he was training to be a cage fighter, and then he was going to defeat um, the Irish guy who got defeated by Mayweather, and then go on to fight Mayweather, and he had a two-year plan to achieve it all. I was saying, have you ever done cage fighting before? And his reasoning was that he's so angry that nobody he hits could ever get back up again. <laughs> and this is like an hour and a half journey from the airport, you know, to uh, where we were in Frankfurt, yes, in yes. Kentucky. 
And then this text, and I was like, oh my God, this guy's in that case. You're just going to have to go along with whatever he says because it's the only way forward. Don't show yes. any doubt. And, um, <laughs> you know, I actually said, look, you know, sort of keep me posted on the page and whatnot. And if you, if you get to, to fight in England, you know, send me a message. I'll come and watch. Oh, it would never yeah. happen. That's but, um, <laughs> Oh my goodness. So getting there and seeing Ron's face and some friendly faces, like, oh, thank God. They're not all crazy. <laughs> oh, it was great. Well, I, Kentucky, I mean, I really like Kentucky. I'm on there probably for. I truly like Kentucky, yeah. And you know what? Um, and, and I mentioned this to Brian whenever I was down there. I was actually looking for sushi. I was in the mood for sushi. Oh, wow. In Kentucky. And Brian said, Ron, whatever you want, by the grace of God, do not eat sushi in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> I found a Chinese rough sushi I ever had. I, I kid you not. It was awesome. It's just, wow. it's Kentucky. I just, sorry, Kentucky, but, uh, you know, when I'm thinking of, of, of Kentucky, I'm thinking bluegrass, lots of sour mash. Um, I'm not thinking uh, sushi, but you know, hey, everybody has oh, their yes. own risks. The breakfast, the breakfast platter in the hotel, I couldn't eat anything. <laughs> I went in, it was just like grits, 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 grits. <laughs> everything to me, because I'm not used to that sort of layout. Everything to me looked like old porridge. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was just like I can't touch this, and um, yes. and I just went to the end, and every day there was like. Um, a bowl of fruits and cereal and then I couldn't even find the milk so I had to have like this whipped cream (laughs) 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 I was like oh you know and I couldn't find um, cappuccino coffee anywhere in the country I was in in Portland in Vermont I thought Starbucks would be everywhere everything was filter I can't drink filter I'm like a I'm a snob (laughs) you you like Uh, the press I mean, like the machine with the cappuccino, I have like a mocha, a hot with cream, and yep. a double shot. That's every morning, and the whole time I was there, everybody's like, "Will you stop asking about coffee shop?" <laughs> <laughs> I go in and filter my coffee up with a vanilla, and it'd be like, Ugh. you know. Yeah. But the country, yeah, I yes, love yes. the country, and I especially love the manners. So, um, something happened to me on, uh, not on the first flight. I went into Florida. So we were grounded. I was a British Airways flight, but every internal flight after that, Delta or what's the other one? Um, the other big one, I forget, but all the internal American, flights. American, yeah, yeah. Yeah, American. American. Airlines, yeah. So every time we landed, everybody got up in order and let the person in front of them get their baggage and get off before them. I was like, this place is insane. Oh. <laughs> 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 Come, everybody's doing this, and then they know to do it. And then people were really shocked that it doesn't happen in the UK. Never. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's letting you off. And some <laughs> other countries, it's worse, but in the UK, for sure, nobody's letting you off. You just get your bag and get to the front as quick as you can as soon as the plane lands. When we go to Israel, they've taken their seatbelts off as we're landing. They're getting the bags out as we're on the, <laughs> the runway. Nobody's waiting, nobody's looking at that sign. That, that, that those are guidelines they're not rules yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. oh that is great, great oh no no this was great my friend and, and ho- hopefully next year we'll get together and we're in place and we're filming an hour worth talking or maybe we'll go out looking for a dog man or the uh place I'll, if you're here and I'm here, I'll definitely find some nice places to take you to, you guys, and you'd be welcome to come along with me. We'll, we'll go and have a little adventure together. It'd be wonderful. I cannot wait. Oh, definitely. Friend, I 
Awesome. Awesome. Bring your wellies. Uh, <laughs> I will. I will do that. I will. Hey, all right, guys. I, I guess that's, that's everything good. then. We, 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 we've accomplished a lot of time, so yes. I will say from inside, you know, I can't believe that I'm saying this, Ron Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And I think that's it. There you go. There you go. That's it, my friend. We'll see you next time. Good night. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Brian Bowden. I want to extend a deep thanks to Purple Planet. You guys rock. Hey, everyone. I'm Kat Ward, host of Paranormal Heart, your monthly paranormal podcast. Join me the last Sunday of every month as I speak to people who share their paranormal experiences. You can follow me on Podbean, YouTube, TuneIn, iTunes, Spotify, and Paranormal Radio. If you're looking for a beautiful piece of stoneware pottery, check out Nodactian Studios at etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Nodactian Studio. And also check her out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Nodakian Studios, where you can see updates as well as giveaways when they come available. Go check it out. There are spirits everywhere, watching, waiting, seeking that opportune time to reveal themselves like no other. They fill our worlds with so much. Seriously? You didn't just do that. You farted on the promo? What's wrong with you? I thought you were professional. Go away. Go. I, I got it. I got it. Hey, everybody. It's Brian Bowden, host of Nobo Boomy, where we explore deep inside the Goblin universe. We have an amazing show that covers the paranormal, conspiracies, music, art, entertainment, trending topics, and so much more. Please join us by subscribing to the show on Podbean at InsideTheGoblinUniverse.Podbean.com, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere you find podcasts. It's an informative, fun, and overall entertaining good time, and uh, we'll keep the gas to ourselves. Why don't you burp next time? Somebody give me Brian Anderson.